Let's turn again, as we did last Sunday evening, to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians and uh, chapter 4. Going to read the first 16 verses, and it's page 1176 in the Church Bibles. So the Apostle Paul writing to these early Christians. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Uh, we're going to look particularly tonight at verse 13. So please have verse 13 in front of your eyes, which I'll just read again, where Paul says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Many, uh, not all of us, might have learnt the old nursery rhyme when we were knee-high to a locust or a grasshopper, whatever it was. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? And the answer need not detain us for very long. But the question leads us, in a sense, to tonight's question. We might ask tonight, Lord God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how does your garden grow? How does what God plants actually grow? That's the title for this evening. There are various options. How does God's garden grow? Maybe more precisely, how do God's people grow? Remember those verses in Isaiah that say that we are the planting of the Lord. Oaks of righteousness planted to grow so that he, God, might be glorified. We're thinking about the subject of maturity. And we've said over the last couple of weeks that it is healthy and natural and right that those who are immature, who are children, should want to grow up. A healthy child wants to grow into an adult. A healthy Christian wants to grow into a mature Christian. But in a sense, that's not really the right starting point. It's not ultimately about what you and I want to happen to us. There's a much bigger issue at stake here. It's a matter not of what we want, but of what God himself wants and will do and must do and must inevitably bring about. God will surely accomplish his own desire, which is the growth and maturity to completion and perfection of his own people, his church, the body of Christ. So I want to look at that theme this evening from verse 13 here in Ephesians and to ask a number of questions. First of all, what grows? What grows? Well, the answer is God's people grow as the one body of Christ. Paul says here in verse 13, notice his language, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and so forth. Paul is concerned about the growth of the whole body of Christ. Every part must grow. The whole body must grow together as an organic, corporate, unified whole in all of its diversity. The growth must be a whole growth and a proportionate growth with every member of the body growing and developing to maturity. There are no mere passengers in Christ's church. There are no spectators 
There are no hangers-on. There are no also-rans. God's goal for this and for every local church and for the whole church worldwide is for every one of you and for me to grow to maturity and to grow together. We all matter. There is no pecking order or hierarchy of importance within the body of Christ. It matters to God that we all grow, and it must matter to every one of us. The body of Christ consists of many parts. The parts may look different, have different functions. Some may be more visible, more prominent than others, but they are all vital, and they all need to grow together. So if you belong to this church, it is your responsibility to pray and to seek not only for your own growth, but the growth of everyone who is here to that full maturity. What is a healthy body? What is a healthy-looking and functioning physical body? It's one where every part is growing and functioning properly and rightly. And if that's not the case, what do you have? You have a lopsided distorted and unhealthy body. So we don't simply ask of ourselves, how am I doing? How am I growing? What progress am I making? No. We have to go on and say, we are joined together as the body of Christ. Paul in verse 16, as you can see, talks about how every part is joined together, is interlinked. We are members of Christ, and we are members of one another. Now, how is all this worked out? Well, I'm not alone. Uh, Many churches and pastors have emphasized this. If you look at the New Testament, you can find a whole host of commands where the words one another are found. And you may have heard pastors elsewhere talking about the one anothering of the New Testament church. There are many one another commands in the letters of the New Testament. You can start in Romans 12 and in verse 10 where it begins with love one another in brotherly affection. And then it goes on in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. It's a most useful exercise to go through the New Testament and to discover every place where Paul or Peter or John or Hebrews says something about one another. It's well worth doing. So worth doing, I've done it for you. And there are some bits of paper here which I'll put out at the back, uh, which you can collect if you want, where all the commands to do with one another are found for you to take home and think about and stick somewhere uh, sensible and read over the coming weeks. If you don't want to do that, well, do it for yourself and search for them yourself in the days ahead. If you go to John's Gospel, or rather John's letters, you find that there's only one one another in John's letters, and it's repeated numerous times. And as you can probably guess, many of you, it is simply love one another. That is the 
outstanding one another of the New Testament. How does God's body grow? Well, it grows as one body in many parts and in that atmosphere and in that culture of love. You can see this in verse 15, for example, in our own text tonight in Ephesians 4. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head. Verse 16 ends by talking about the body growing so that it builds itself up in love. That's the heart of it. One body, many members growing together. That's to be the passion and the prayer for maturity that we as God's people are to have together. But I have a second question. Not now what grows, but how do we grow? Or in what direction do we grow? Or in what capacity do we grow? Well, here's the answer. God's people grow in unity of faith and knowledge of Christ. Verse 13, we're in tonight, I'll read it again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, please understand this. Paul is not talking about two separate things when he says the unity of the faith and then the knowledge of the Son of God. They are not two different or separate things. They are really running together in parallel. They are really one and the same thing. Let me put it to you like this. What is your faith? What should your faith be? What is Christian faith? Do we say about people, she has a very strong faith. He has a a very vibrant faith. His faith is better than my faith. Her faith is amazing. Well, what should we really be saying if we are true to the spirit of the New Testament? Christian faith consists in the knowledge of the Son of God. If Christian faith is something other than that, it's not actually Christian faith at all. Paul is talking here about the unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. They are the same thing. We all grow together as we grow in faith, which is the knowledge of the Son of God. Now let's just think about what that means. What is this knowledge? We think of knowledge and we think of how we know and what we know with, and we know with our minds, we know with our brains, we know with our heads. And yes, the knowledge of the Son of God enters through the intellectual faculty. It does. We need to know with our minds, but it doesn't stop there, does it? It's not mere head knowledge if it's the real thing. The knowledge of Jesus Christ lives in our heads, But it lives in our hearts, it lives in our consciences, it lives in our wills, it lives in our whole person. And we saw on Wednesday night at House Group, if we were there, 
that this knowledge is summed up in the attitude of the same Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 when he says in verse 10 this wonderful statement, so simple yet so clear and yet so rich, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. What does that mean? You want to know more about him? Yes, but so much more than that. I want to know the man, Jesus Christ himself. I want to walk with him. I want to hold fellowship with him. I want to have a conversation with him. I want to know his mind. I want to know this man. I want him to be my closest and my best friend. Go back two verses to verse 8, and Paul speaks there of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Isn't that again a wonderful expression? So personal, so possessive, so intimate, so close. It shows us what the knowledge of Christ is about. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we need to be very, very clear. And this is so, so important. What Christians like you and me need, above all else, supremely, is to know Christ rather than knowing ourselves. Now, let's just pause and think about that for a moment. Do we need to know ourselves? Yes, we do. Self-knowledge is important. And we should apply the knowledge of Christ to ourselves. We cannot but know ourselves. We need to know ourselves. We do know ourselves. But the object of my faith and yours, if you are a Christian, is not myself, not my own faith, not my own knowledge, not my own love, not my own progress in faith and in knowledge. And this we need to really grasp. The great object of your faith and mine must be Jesus Christ himself. It's easy, for example, to say, I'm a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian? I'm a Christian because I know that I have believed. I'm a Christian because I know that I have faith. Because I know that I'm growing in faith and in knowledge. Well, is that your object of faith? That you are somehow making progress? What happens when you think you're going backwards, as many of us often feel that we are? Where does your faith reside then? It seems to me on something like a spider's web that will be easily broken and snapped. This is what we need to understand. We grow in faith. We grow most rapidly, most healthily, to the greatest maturity, not when we are indulging in introspective self-examination, monitoring our own health, taking our own pulse, measuring our progress, as many of us are prone to do. But we grow when our minds and hearts are focused on Jesus Christ. 
Now let me apply this, or let me illustrate this in a number of areas. Here is somebody who is poorly nourished. I mean physically. They're way underweight. They're several stones lighter than they should be. They need to do something about it. And this person says, well, I, I keep weighing myself. I keep examining my diet. I keep checking what I'm eating and weighing myself, and I'm not putting on any weight. However much I weigh myself, I don't get any heavier. Well, you won't, will you? Until you start to eat nourishing food. Here's an athlete trying to improve her times for 100 meters, whatever it might be. And she says, I'm, I'm exploring my times. I'm examining graphs and charts of my times over the last two or three years, and uh, I'm not getting any faster. However hard I look at all the evidence and the data, I'm getting no fitter and no faster. I keep looking at all my results. It makes no difference. But it won't, will it? Get out on the track and practice, and then you'll get faster. Grow in speed and fitness by exercising. School children are not educated by taking an endless series of tests and assessments. They need to be taught substantial material for them to grow in understanding. That's my little political slot for the evening, which I'm sure you will agree with, and it's cross-party, okay? But uh, we don't educate by a series of mind-numbing tests. Neither do teachers particularly enjoy taking lots of tests or uh, making their children take them. Do you see my point? This all applies to Christians. We need to be nourished and exercised and taught as we do what? As we, especially together, as we are now, as the body of Christ, grow up in that faith which is the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Jesus. We feed on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. How does this work out? Test yourselves, says he, having said how bad testing is. Supposing I were to say to you, I would like you between now and next Sunday to read through the letter to the Ephesians that we're looking at now. Six chapters. Read a chapter a day, Monday to Saturday. Read through one chapter a day on Saturday. And then I'm going to ask you next week what you have learned. What have you learned as you've looked through Ephesians? And then I sit down a couple of people and they give me their answers. And the first one answers that by saying, well, I've learned a lot about myself and what a poor Christian I am. I'm not succeeding very well here. I'm failing by and large. I know that I'm very weak. I don't understand very much. I've learned that I've got an awfully long way to go. I've read through Ephesians and I've basically concluded that my own progress 
is very poor. I don't know enough. I, I don't read enough. I don't understand enough. I, I don't pray enough. I, I, I don't do all these things. Well, that, that's what I've learned. Okay? And the second person says, well, I've read the letter and I've learnt about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've learnt how God has a plan in Christ to unite all things in heaven and earth in him. To make one body out of Jew and Gentile. That he's called us and saved us to be a church. And that we are the body of Christ. And that we are the bride of Christ. And we have to put on the full armor of Christ to stand and to fight and to pray. And I've learned so much about God's great plan in Christ as I've read through Ephesians. Two people. Two answers. Which of these two do you think has really read Ephesians in the right way? The first or the second? Well, the correct answer is the second. Because Ephesians is all about Jesus Christ. It's not all about you or me. It's not about how you are doing or how much you understand, or how you're succeeding or failing. Now you think about that. When you read the Bible, any portion of the Bible, do you look first of all for yourself in the pages? Are you looking for yourself? Or are you first of all actually looking for the Lord? Looking for God? Looking for Christ? That's healthy. That's the food you need. That is the wise and right approach. To look out and to look up and not to look in. Remember again the legend, the Greek legend or myth of Narcissus. Remember Narcissus? How this man was looking for meaning and love and truth. And he's a vain man, he's a hypocritical man. You can read the various accounts if you Google Narcissus and Echo and all these characters. And you find Narcissus stooping down by a pool of water, gazing at his own reflection. And he's stunned by his own image. And he loves his own reflection in that pool of water. And he wants to feed off it and grow by it. But he doesn't grow, does he? He ends up dying by that pool because his own reflection can't benefit him or grow him or mature him at all. Brothers and sisters, we live in a profoundly narcissistic age and generation where everything is about personal and professional development plans and monitoring our own progress and we look within. We're told to look within for something that will motivate us to grow and do better. Now that may, that may work in certain areas. But I tell you in the Christian life we can never grow by looking within ourselves. Can we? Now please let's get this absolutely right. In case you misunderstand me. I am not saying... 
I am not saying that there is no place whatsoever for self-examination. If I did, I would be contradicting Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul, the same Apostle Paul again, says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There we are. Testing can be good and right. But the overwhelming encouragement of the Scriptures is not to be looking to ourselves, but to be looking to the one who gives us life and gives us growth and brings us to maturity, and that, of course, is to Christ. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. The words that Spurgeon heard as a young 15-year-old on a snowy day in Essex in January 1850 from a semi-literate preacher who read these words of Isaiah, and Spurgeon heard these words, and he was sorrowful that day. He was sad, but he looked, and he saw, and he believed, and he saw Christ. Look unto me. The great, godly, saintly Robert Murray McShane. One of his pithier sayings, briefer sayings. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. If you are spending an evening in mournful introspection, You feel bad about your sins, as well we all might, as well I might. Don't leave it there. Spend ten times as long looking to the one who made an end of all your sin. Christ our righteousness. Jesus Christ our salvation. Christ in us the hope of glory. Christ who is our life. Christ who is the true Vine, Christ who is the very bread of life and the light of the world and the resurrection and the way and the truth and the life. Is that about ten views of Christ there? There or thereabouts. That's the proportion, isn't it? Look at him. McShane goes on in language that we might find a little bit flowery for the 21st century, but uh, this is the way that he wrote and preached and spoke and prayed. He says in the same sermon, let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly, for foolishness, or the world, or Satan." Or the flesh. We grow in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ by not looking to ourselves, but by looking to Him. That is how we grow. Focusing on yourself and your failures or even your successes is doomed to a stunted phase in your life. But look to Him. And you won't be like a narcissus, like a daffodil looking down. You'll be like a tulip that looks up to the sun and stretches out its petals and its leaves and grows heavenwards. That's what we want to be, don't we, as we grow in Christ. But I have a final point. Because with any 
process of growth, we have to ask this question, don't we? What does it grow into? What do we grow into? And here's the answer. God's people grow into the fullness of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, then it says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does this picture of mature manhood actually mean? It's adult manhood in its absolute prime. The full development and flourishing of every human faculty. This is a grown man, a strong man, a mighty man, an able man. This is not an old man. This is not the picture of a man whose capacities are are fading and deteriorating. There's no sense of aging or senility with this man. No, this is a man who is throbbing with life, who is in the prime of his manhood, maturity in all its fullness, the ideal man, the perfect man, manhood as God intended it to be. Every part of this adult manhood developed to its fullest extent and all in perfect proportion. And who is this man? Who is this man? Is this man Adam before the fall? It might be, we might think, an unfallen man with every ability and strength and virtue there in, in wonderful development. But we're told that this is not Adam, at least not the first Adam. This perfect man that we are growing into together is Jesus Christ himself. It's hard for us perhaps to see the picture. But here we are, the church of Jesus Christ, and even this local church here at Grove Chapel. We are many, but we are one body. We are the body of Christ, meaning that Christ is to be reflected in us and seen in us as we together grow into his mature manhood. The whole body of Christ in every part, living, breathing, and walking in devoted love and fellowship with Christ, who is the head. This is God's great program of Christian maturity that you and I are following. This is the course that we have all enrolled on as the church together, that together, corporately as one, we grow into the mature manhood of Christ himself. Now, just a few comments on this. Don't we all know that the maturing process in human beings takes an awfully long time? And it works at different levels, physical, intellectual, emotional, behavioral. Development from infancy to adulthood 
is a complex and delicate process. It's not a nice straight line graph that goes smoothly upwards. It has many reversals. It seems to go back on itself. There are waves, there are peaks, there are troughs, there are setbacks, and so on. And so is the work of Christian maturing in every one of us, and indeed in the life of a whole congregation. But this is what we must see this evening. God himself will ensure that it is done, ultimately. Our God will not leave his people to languish permanently in a state of immaturity and infantility. Why? How can we know this? We can be certain because our God will ensure successful completion and maturation because he is the ultimate master craftsman. How can an infinite and perfect God be satisfied with anything less than perfection in the creatures that he loves. I'm no craftsman of any kind. I'm no artist. I'm no sculptor. I'm not creative. But a craftsman of any kind who's preparing something of beauty will use all his skill to make it perfect, won't he? 99% won't do. He's about to finish his masterpiece. It's a beautiful sculpture, but that hand is not quite in the right proportion. That, that nose on his head is just a little bit too big or too small. Something's not quite right. The, the artist, the painter, that shade of green or whatever it might be is just slightly wrong for that part of the pasture that he's painting in the background. It's got to be made right. It's got to be just perfect. It can't contain any flaw. And this is the work of God in you and in me and in all of us together. The goal of the body of Christ is not only mature manhood. It's the fullness of Christ. It's likeness to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm finding this extraordinary. But, you know, if we're Christians, have we not at some point in our lives looked at Jesus and said of him, what an amazing man this Son of God is. What humility. What tenderness. What gentleness. What love, what grace, what power, what condescension to come down to our level, what servanthood, what a sacrifice, what an amazing and wonderful and admirable and delightful person this Son of God, Jesus Christ, is. He's fairer than the fairest of 10,000, is he not? If we know Jesus, we... If we truly know Jesus, we feel that way about him, don't we? We say, what a man he is. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying here? 
He's saying, you know, you, the church of Jesus Christ, God is working in you together as individuals, but as a corporate group. He's working in you to shape and fashion that image of his Son in you to be like him. As we say with Paul, I want to know Christ. For me to live is Christ. I want to know him and be found in him. He is my heart's desire. I worship him. We become increasingly like the object of our worship. We together become like Christ himself. That is Christian maturity. That is the goal that is set before us all. That is what should make our hearts and minds yearn and long and pray and say, Lord, speed on that process in all of us. Make us more like your Son together. This is, you see, a growth and development plan that God has written And it's for you and me as precious individuals, but it's also, and especially, for us as the church, as God's great and growing community of faith. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the Lord. She, that is the church, is His new creation by water and the word. If any is in Christ, new creation. Grove Chapel and those in Christ in Grove Chapel, a new creation. With all the tender, creative, passionate love of God being poured into perfecting that creation in time and in eternity until that day when the Son of God comes and looks at his handiwork and he inspects the church and he inspects the local churches and he says of you and of me and of us together, I look at them and I see my own likeness in them. I see fellow feeling in them. I see one who is as I am, says Christ, looking at his church, looking at his bride, the husband and the bride becoming one in love and in that likeness to one another. What a goal. What a prospect. What a prayer. And it's about even more than this, you know, isn't it? I'm nearly finished. It's about the restoration of the whole universe. This is bigger than a church-building project. This is about everything in heaven and on earth being renewed in Christ. If you were to go back to chapter 1 and verse 10 in Ephesians, you would read there that Paul does not take long to get to really what God's great plan is. What is it? It's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Will anything in heaven or on earth, anyone in heaven or on earth, any place, any created being be outside God's plan? 
No, it can't. No, it won't. Our God is engaged in a mighty, cosmic, overarching project to bring the whole universe to a state of mature, perfected glory for his own pleasure, all in and through Jesus, the Son of his love. And because he is God and Lord over all, this is the wonderful thing with which I close, he cannot fail, he cannot be frustrated, he cannot be disappointed, he cannot fall short of what he intends to bring about. And if you and I belong to Jesus, then that glorious process will be effected and brought to completion in each of us to the praise of his wonderful name through everything that goes on in your life. That video we watched, that DVD and Wednesday night house groups was talking about how we might look back over our lives and say, well, I would have done it differently. I wish that episode had never been What a shame that that happened to me 20, 25 years ago. That episode, that choice I made, oh, that wrong turning I took, oh, that's a disaster. I wish it were different. And you know what? The Lord never says that. Everything that's happened to you and will happen to you is part of his loving process to bring you and me and us together to that glorious completion and maturity, which is the fullness of Christ. Praise be to his name. Let's pray together. Our God, our Heavenly Father, we come now, we worship you, we pray have your own way, you who are the potter and we who are the clay. But, O Lord, we are not merely clay. You have full sovereign rights over us, but you are going to make of us more than mere clay vessels. You are going to make of us and are making of us all wonderful images and altogether one great image in which the likeness of Jesus Christ himself is reflected. Oh, help us to see this and help us to long for this for ourselves and for one another and for us as a congregation and indeed for the whole worldwide church of Jesus Christ. We come to you now. We pray that we would in no way, Lord, as it were, be an obstacle or a hindrance to that work that you would work within all of us. We pray that we might be ready for all your perfect will to be revealed to us. Help us, we pray. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.